Well, just over 100 years ago, the famous medical missionary Albert Schweitzer wrote a landmark book entitled The Quest of the Historical Jesus. It was a period of intense debate about Jesus. What can we really know about him? What did he actually say and what did he actually do? Instead of just relying on the scriptures, Schweitzer and other scholars applied the historical method to the study of Jesus. They turned to the disciplines of archaeology and textual criticism and comparative religions to try to get at the truth about Jesus. Now, Schweitzer was a great mind, a true Renaissance man, a historian, a musician, a physician, and a theologian. And he entered into this pursuit with great intensity and intellectual rigor. But in the end, he concluded that we really couldn't know very much about the historical Jesus. Not much more than the fact that he was a first-century apocalyptic prophet who met an untimely and unfortunate end. And Schweitzer's book effectively brought to an end what we now call the first quest for the historical Jesus. Decades passed, and some uh, back in the 1950s, another generation of scholars came along, and they turned their attention again to some of these very same questions. What can we really know about Jesus of Nazareth? And this second quest, as it came to be known, wrestled with the tension between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. Were they one and the same, or did history and faith take us in two different directions? In the 1980s, a third quest came along for the historic Jesus, a new generation of scholars that wasn't satisfied with this artificial distinction and tried to reconcile the disciplines of history and faith. Now, it was that third quest that gave us uh, the infamous Jesus Seminar, a group of skeptical scholars who concluded that most of what we read about Jesus in the Gospels never really happened. At the same time, it was this third quest that brought to the fore a previously unheralded scholar named N.T. Wright, who has become for us today a sort of C.S. Lewis for the postmodern world, a credible intellectual historian and theologian who's brought a great defense of the Christian faith. It was N.T. Wright's work that helped save my faith some years ago when I was in a season of real struggle with the faith. I've actually had dinner with N.T. Wright, and he is just as smart and winsome as he looks. (laughs) Now, all this to say, that the quest for the real Jesus has been going on for a very long time. I'm not just talking about a hundred years. From the very beginning, as we're going to discover this morning, from the very beginning, the identity and mission of Jesus has been clouded by controversy. And so if you sometimes find yourself saying, really, can we actually believe this stuff? You are not alone. You're in pretty good company, in fact. Some of the greatest minds in history and faith have wrestled with these questions. Did Jesus of Nazareth really exist? Is Jesus really good for the world? Can we really know him? The question we're asking today is, did Jesus really claim to be God in the flesh? And if so, can we believe him? Did Jesus really claim to be God, and if so, can we believe him? 
Now, to answer that question, I'd like to take us to a, a passage of Scripture from the Gospel of John in which people are asking these very same questions. Now, so far in this series, we've heard a lot about what other people say about Jesus. This morning, I'd like us to focus on what Jesus had to say about Jesus. What did he say and believe about himself and about his message? Now, it's an extended passage I'd like us to look at this morning, and I'd like us to get a feel for the dynamics of this conversation. And so I'm going to storytell it for you. I'd like you to just listen for a few minutes. Listen for the, the claims Jesus makes about himself, and listen for the variety of responses people make to Jesus. I'm going to be sharing some selections from the Gospel of John, chapters 7 and 8, as we find them in the uh, New Living Translation of the Bible. After this, Jesus traveled about in the region of Galilee. He didn't want to go down to Judea because the Jews there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles drew near, his brothers said to him, why don't you leave Galilee and go to Judea and do your works there so your followers can see them? No one who wants to be famous does their work in secret. Since you're doing these miraculous things, why not show yourself to the world? Now his brothers said these things, but they didn't believe in him. So after his brothers went up to the festival, Jesus went up too, but in secret, staying out of public view. And the Jewish leaders were trying to find him in the city, asking everyone if they'd seen him. And there was all kinds of murmuring in the crowd about Jesus. Some said, he's a good man. Others said, he's a fraud who deceives the people. No one dared say anything favorable about him in public for fear of the religious authorities. About halfway through the feast, Jesus went into the temple courts and began to teach. The people were amazed. Where did this man get such knowledge without ever being taught? So Jesus said to them, My teaching is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or whether I speak on my own. Now, at this point, some of the people in Jerusalem began to say, isn't this the one they're trying to kill? But here he is speaking in public, and, and no one is saying a word to him. Have the authorities concluded that he is the Messiah after all? But how can he be? We know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. Now, Jesus was still in the temple courts when they were saying these things, and so he cried out, Yes, you know who I am and where I am from, but I am not here on my own. The one who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Now at this, the Jewish leaders tried to seize him, but no one could lay a hand on him because his time had not yet come. And some in the crowd began to believe in him. After all, they said, when the Messiah comes, will he do greater works than this man? When the Pharisees heard people whispering these things in the street, they got together with the chief priests and sent the temple guard to arrest Jesus. 
On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up in the temple courts and said, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Anyone who believes in me, as Scripture has said, from out of them will flow rivers of living water. And when they heard him say this, some people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He's the Messiah. But others said, How can he be? Will the Messiah come from Galilee? And so the people were divided over Jesus. Some wanted to have him arrested, but no one could lay a hand on him. And so when the temple guard came back to the chief priests and the Pharisees without having arrested Jesus, the the leader said, why didn't you bring him in? And the guard said, no one ever spoke the way this man does. What, has he deceived you too, they said? Have any of your leaders believed in him? You're listening to this mob that knows nothing of the law. There's a curse on them. But then, one of their own number, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier at night, he spoke up and said, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing what he has to say? What, are you from Galilee too, they said? Search the scriptures, see for yourself. No prophet comes out of Galilee. Later on, Jesus stood up again in the temple courts and said, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light that leads to life. Many people at this point began to believe in him and to put their faith in him. But the Pharisees challenged him. You're saying these things about yourself. These claims are not valid. Jesus said, my testimony is valid, even though I'm making these claims myself. Your own law says that if anything is established by two witnesses, it shall be accepted as true. I am one witness. The other witness is my father who sent me. The Pharisees said, Where is your father? Jesus replied, If you knew my father, you would know me. Now he said these things while he was still in the temple courts, right right near the place where the offerings were put. But no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. And so he continued, You are from below, I am from above. You belong to this world, I do not. That's why I have said to you, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. They said, so who are you? Just who I've always claimed to be, he said. And when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own, but that I say only what my Father has told me to say. At this point, the Pharisees challenged Him again. We are Abraham's descendants. 
We've never been slaves to anyone. Why are you saying that we should be set free? Jesus said, if you are Abraham's descendants, you would follow his example. Instead, you're trying to kill me because I'm telling you the truth. As my father has told me, Abraham never did such things. You are showing who your true father is. We are not illegitimate children, the Pharisees said. Our father is God, our true father. Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. Because I am from him and he sent me to you. Why can't you understand what I'm telling you? Which of you can truthfully accuse me of any sin? I'm telling you the truth. Why, why can't you believe me? Anyone who belongs to God listens gladly to the words of God. You don't listen because you don't belong to God. The Pharisees said, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan? And possessed by a demon? Jesus said, I am not possessed by a demon. I'm just telling you the truth. Anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. Well, now we know that you're possessed, they said. Abraham died and so did the prophets. And yet you say anyone who believes in you will never die. Are you greater than Abraham? Who do you think you are? Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He did see it and was glad. You're not even 50 years old, they said, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was, I am. And at that, they picked up stones to stone him. But he slipped out of the temple courts because his time had not yet come. The word of the Lord. Now, there are a few reasons I wanted to present the scripture to you that way. The first is that I wanted us to feel the tension, the confusion, the, the controversy that swirled around Jesus. Even then, even among people who could look him in the eye and hear him speak, people who could ask him questions and interact with him personally, people who knew the scriptures and had a heart for God, bright people, they struggled to understand exactly what Jesus tried to say about himself. What did his words and actions mean for the world and for their lives and for their nation? And honestly, as you can tell, Jesus didn't make it especially easy on them. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we struggle sometimes to understand exactly what Jesus says and means. And we shouldn't be surprised when someone asks us a hard question about Jesus. Or when we watch a show on the History Channel that offers some alternative view of Jesus. Or when a teacher or a professor in a classroom 
begins to undermine our understanding of the Bible and the Gospels. We don't need to be afraid of these conversations. These questions have been, have been around for a long time, and Jesus is still standing. My second reason for presenting the Scripture this way is I wanted us to appreciate the range of responses to Jesus. I mean, they're all over the place. He's a prophet. He's the Messiah. He's a fraud. He's a Samaritan. He's demon-possessed. He's crazy. His brothers, who knew him best, seem downright cynical about him. The religious leaders who had a heart for God and knew the scriptures, they want to kill him. And, and all along, other people, many people, in fact, are coming to believe in him and ready to follow him anywhere. And so as I was kind of processing and trying to analyze these many reactions to Jesus, it brought to my mind a visual aid that we sometimes use in our Alpha course. It's designed to help people understand where they are on their spiritual journey, the journey they're making towards faith. And so I got the journey out again and took a look at it. And I was surprised to find nearly every stop on this journey is represented right here in this conversation. In John 7 and 8, we meet people who are suspicious, angry, confused, curious. Some seem to actively be seeking. Others are at various stages of belief. Now, we don't meet any disinterested people in particular, but surely there were thousands of people who walked right past the temple courts and had no interest in anything that Jesus had to say. It's all right there. I was especially intrigued by the one person we meet by name in this story, and that's Nicodemus, who, who himself is making this very same journey. Now remember, Nicodemus was a religious leader, and so there must have been a time at the beginning when, like his colleagues, Nicodemus was suspicious and even angry with Jesus. This renegade, self-styled prophet that came from out of Galilee to stir up all kinds of trouble and undermine their authority? For sure, Nicodemus was angry and suspicious for a time. But then John 3 tells us that in his confusion and his curiosity, Nicodemus actually came to Jesus secretly one night and began to ask questions. And now here we are in John 7 and 8, and by the time we meet him here, he seems to be now in a seeking mode. He says, does our law condemn a man without first hearing what he has to say? It sounds like he wants to know more, like he's making steps along this journey. And so once again, we shouldn't be surprised or discouraged when it takes us or other people time to make their journey of faith. When we talk to people who are confused or curious or hostile or disinterested in the gospel, when we feel that way sometimes, because it can happen on either end of that spectrum, we can find ourselves that way. So I wanted us to feel the tension surrounding Jesus then and now. I wanted us to see the range of responses to Jesus then and now. But mostly, I wanted us to hear the remarkable and even outrageous claims that Jesus is making about himself. You see, one of the most popular critiques of the Christian faith today is that Jesus was a great teacher, he was a powerful prophet, he was a Jewish cynic, he was maybe even a miracle worker of some sort, but he certainly wasn't God and never even claimed to be God. 
It's a very popular line of thinking. It has been for a while. I'll never forget the time a couple of missionaries came knocking on the front door of my childhood home. I was about 12 or 13, I think, at the time. Now, I didn't know they were missionaries when they came to the door, but my mother invited them in, and before I knew it, we were sitting in the living room talking about God and Jesus and the Bible. Now, they knew their Bibles really well. They were nice people, and we were having a pretty pleasant conversation. And I kept wondering when my mother was going to tell them, we're on the same team. (laughs) But then, they began telling us that Jesus wasn't really God. He was a lesser God, maybe a kind of super angel, perhaps, maybe a son of God, but not the son of God, and certainly not God in the flesh. Like I said, they knew their Bibles really well. And and they began pointing things out that I'd never noticed before, like the fact that, that Jesus didn't know the time of his own return, or the fact that Jesus is described as begotten or firstborn, which sounds like he came along later. They insisted that Jesus nowhere actually claims to be God. This is very unsettling to me. Now, my mom was pretty good with her Bible, and she gave some good answers, but I was still very troubled by what I was hearing. All the things I'd always believed about Jesus, were they really there in the Bible? Was Jesus really God? Could I prove it from the Bible? This is a challenge that's been offered for many, many people. Certainly in some of these pseudo-Christian groups, like the one represented by those missionaries, but certainly represented by all the religions of the world, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, they're all willing to acknowledge Jesus as a teacher or a prophet or a guru, but, but never that he was God. You can even visit many contemporary churches around our country today and not find the teaching that Jesus was God. But but then we turn to texts like this and and we really listen to what Jesus has to say. We realize that Jesus did, in fact, make all kinds of claims about himself, all of them suggesting, implying, and pointing to the fact that he was, in fact, in a unique relationship with God. Listen again to some of the things Jesus said about himself. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. I am the light of the world. If you knew me, you would know my Father. Anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. Now, who says things like this? Imagine any of our presidential candidates making these kinds of claims. (laughs) This is Donald Trump on steroids. These these aren't the words of a good teacher or a prophet or a guru. These are the words of a megalomaniac. Unless, unless, of course, they're true. Unless the one saying these things actually demonstrates a unique, intimate relationship with God, unlike any the world has ever seen. And if Jesus is kind of reluctant to come right out with it, it's only because he's trying to slow things down because his time has not yet come to be arrested. But when his critics keep pressing and challenging, he finally comes up with a statement 
that his hearers would have understood completely. There would have been no doubt. Before Abraham was, I am. He gave himself the name that God gave himself at the burning bush when he revealed himself to Moses. Yahweh. I am that I am, or I am who I am. We're not exactly sure even how to pronounce it, how to spell it, what it actually means. But it's a name that can only be applied to the one eternal, almighty, all-sufficient creator of heaven and earth. And Jesus gives it to himself. No wonder they picked up stones to stone him. It was blasphemy. He was making himself out to be one with God. One of the more popular and eloquent critics of historic Christianity today is a scholar named Bart Ehrman. Now, Ehrman came to faith in Christ as a teenager, and he studied Bible at two bastions of evangelical Christianity, Moody Bible Institute and then Wheaton College. In fact, when I was doing my research, I discovered that Bart Ehrman was actually in my graduating class. I went to my yearbook to be sure, and sure enough, there he was. A lot more hair. (laughs) But wasn't that true of all of us? (laughs) So at a time, he had a vibrant faith in Christ. But at a certain point, his studies took him in a different direction. And he came to the conclusion that the Jesus we meet in the Gospels isn't the real Jesus after all, but it's actually a fabrication of the early church. Now, he outlines this view in a recent book entitled, How Jesus Became God, The Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee. And his premise is that the followers of Jesus were so devastated by his death, so desperate for it to be true, that they imagined him to have risen from the dead. And then they redacted or revised the Gospels to support the idea that Jesus was, in fact, God. And so their argument is that Christianity, as we know it today, had very little to do with Jesus of Nazareth. It really was an invention of the early church, of the apostles. And when it comes to the Gospel of John, they say it's the one we can trust the least because it was the latest to be written and perhaps the most likely to be doctored. Now, I take the time to present that point of view simply because I don't want you to be surprised by it when when you encounter it in the media or, or in a university classroom somewhere or in a conversation at Starbucks with someone. How do we answer this challenge? Did Jesus really claim to be God? And if so, can we believe him? Now, no time for a thorough debate on this subject, but let me offer you five simple talking points. First, all four Gospels indicate that Jesus believed himself to be the unique Son of God and Messiah of Israel. Now, we've already seen that in the Gospel of John, but let's set aside John for a minute. In Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, We find Jesus saying and doing all kinds of things that only God could say and do. Healing the sick. Exercising demons. Having power over the forces of nature. 
forgiving sins, reinterpreting the law, pronouncing judgment. When Peter declared Jesus to be the Messiah of God, Jesus accepted that confession and blessed him for it. All four Gospels reveal a Jesus who presented himself as God in the flesh. Secondly, the four Gospels are among the most reliable documents in antiquity. Again and again, archaeological, textual, historical evidence has confirmed that the Gospels are, in fact, eyewitness accounts written soon after the events took place, probably in the 60 to 90 A.D. period, while enemies of Christianity were still alive who could dispute any of the claims that were being made. We have literally thousands and thousands of fragments and portions of manuscripts that reveal very little evidence of being doctored and very few significant discrepancies. Third, even Jesus' enemies understood his claims to be one with God and the Messiah of Israel. The Pharisees and chief priests weren't confused. They knew exactly what Jesus was claiming for himself. That's why they tried to stone him. That's why he died. Fourth, the gospel sayings and stories show little or no evidence of being invented by the early church. Now, it's clear that the Gospels and the rest of the books of the New Testament are telling the same story, but there are enough differences between them to make clear that they were written independently of each other. For instance, take the kingdom of heaven. It's one of Jesus' favorite topics. He speaks about it probably more than any other single subject, the kingdom of heaven. And yet, that phrase hardly ever appears in the writings of the apostles. Why would they put it in Jesus' mouth and then hardly mention it in the rest of the Scripture? And the converse is true. The things that the apostles tend to write about, justification by faith, grace, Jewish-Gentile controversy, meat offered to idols, these things that were so important to them, Jesus hardly ever mentions those things. All this to say, if the apostles are inventing the Gospels to support their own beliefs and claims, they did a terrible job of it. Finally, the disciples had no reason or basis to come up with the claims Jesus made in the Gospels. Take the virgin birth, for instance. There was no precedent in Old Testament scripture or Jewish tradition for the Messiah to be born of a virgin. Matthew was the first one to make that connection to Isaiah 7.14. How and why would they ever have concocted such an outrageous and scandalous idea? The same is true for the resurrection. There was nothing in, in, in Jewish belief and tradition, nothing even in Greek and Roman thought that would support the idea of a human being rising bodily from the grave in some glorified fashion. It just, that idea wasn't even there. Who would, no one could have imagined such a thing happening. And even if some might have imagined it happening, nobody else would believe it unless they had experienced some evidence for it. And the same is true for this idea that the Messiah was God. That was not an expectation of Judaism, that the Messiah would in fact be God. 
the, the religious leaders didn't just have a trouble with, with Jesus claiming to be the Messiah. They had a problem with anyone claiming to be God. It just was unthinkable. No one could or would have come up with such an idea. So all this to say that the challenge that Jesus never claimed to be God and that Christianity was the invention of the early church simply does not hold up logically, historically, biblically. The Jesus we meet in the Gospels believed himself to be the unique Son of God. He proclaimed himself to be the unique Son of God and he gave much evidence to demonstrate that he was, in fact, the unique Son of God. Notice, no one in the crowd questioned the fact that he was doing miracles. No one in the crowd could accuse him of any sin or wrongdoing. And that's true even today among scholars, even skeptical ones, that Jesus lived a remarkable life and did some remarkable things. Now, the testimony of history and Scripture is that Jesus stands alone. No one ever spoke the way Jesus spoke. No one ever did the things Jesus did. No one ever lived the way Jesus lived. No one ever loved the way Jesus loved. No one ever died the way Jesus died. And no one was ever rumored to have risen from the dead and to have been seen by hundreds of people who went to their graves, many of them, insisting that it was true. Make no mistake about it. Jesus believed himself to be the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, and the Savior of the world. The only thing left to decide is whether we believe it. And that, as we've seen, is a journey. So as we finish up, let's take one more look at that spiritual journey. Can you find yourself somewhere on that continuum? Can you trace the steps you've made along your journey of faith? It's not always a straight line, is it? You can sometimes take two steps forward and one step back. You can get stalled. You can get detoured on either side of the continuum. But the one stop you can't avoid is the surrender stop. Now, surrender is a pretty strong word. We don't have time to unpack it this morning. But we use that word to remind ourselves that there is more to belief than knowledge. Yes, it's important for us to engage our minds, to do the history, to be reasonable. We dare not check our brains at the door. There's a rational side to faith. But there is also a volitional side to faith. There's a choice to be made. There's a decision to be made. We engage our minds, but we engage our hearts as well. Jesus said it in the conversation we heard today. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will know. There comes a point where you choose to believe Jesus is who he said he was and to trust him with your whole life and to follow him with your whole heart. Remember Nicodemus, the Pharisee who has been making a journey? He shows up one more time in the Gospel of John. Interestingly, he shows up at the cross. 
When Joseph of Arimathea, a secret disciple of Jesus, shows up to take the body down, wrap it in cloths, and lay it in his tomb, he's accompanied by someone. It's Nicodemus. Could it be that there at the cross, watching him, Jesus, die, that Nicodemus completed his journey from suspicion and anger and confusion and curiosity and seeking finally to faith? Was it there at the cross that he believed that somehow, some way, Jesus is who he said he was? Have you come to that point? Where are you on your spiritual journey? And what's keeping you from making your next step? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord for meeting each of us where we are as we make our way through life and towards you, even in roundabout ways. Thank you for the freedom to ask questions and to struggle and to circle back and to revive the journey. I pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you might show each one of us the next step you would have us to take. And may we be inspired by the scriptures, by your spirit, by the people around us to continue following you. You who claimed yourself to be Son of God, Messiah of Israel, Savior of the world. We commit our journeys to you in Jesus' name. Amen.